Man, I'm just excited to be in the house of God. God is doing some awesome things, some awesome um, events coming up, and today is just one of the many things that we want to do this summer that would just change perspective of what church really is. Amen. Without further ado, I want to introduce to you Michael Ferris. He has a, a international ministry called A Journey to the Potter's House, and what he does is exactly what you see here, what he will present to you. This is the third time in the last four days, I believe, he's doing this. Um, this is his ministry. This is his call. And I would ask you to be attentive, and I would ask you, Elijah, that you would stop talking. Amen? And Alexis, that you would behave yourselves today. And if I see you guys talking, you're just going to go to the office. Amen? And I'll sit with you. I'll watch the video after. Amen? I'm so excited. Come on, put your hands together as we welcome up Michael Ferris. Hello. Okay, you can hear me. Good. Good. See, this is a, this was a metaphor right here, what you just witnessed. This morning will be a morning of metaphors. And we just started off with one. You probably didn't even recognize it. Uh, I was told that this was a shared channel, so I couldn't turn it on until the, uh, the pastor was, was done. And so uh, you just witnessed me turn that on, and here's the metaphor. You see, friend, <clears throat> it's one thing to be plugged into something. It's something altogether different to be turned on, right? Right? When you, when you put your faith in Christ, you get plugged into a power, a source that's greater than yourself, but if you want to live the victorious life that Christ died for you to have, friend, you've got to be turned on. Yeah, you've got to be turned on. <laughs> so, so, praise the Lord. I hope you get turned on this morning. Well, I'm just, uh, I'm so excited uh, to be with you. Uh, a week ago today, I was getting off the plane from Peru. I was there for a week. I, every year, I go involved in a ministry down there that rescues homeless children. And, and I do some teaching, teaching the people that work with these traumatized kids. It's really a very powerful, draining ministry. So I got off the, got off the plane and uh, was met by the devil. How many, of you, <laughs> how many of you know when you do something for, the, for God, the devil's going to try to sabotage everything you do? And so, uh, uh, but we've had a victorious week. And then, uh, like Pastor said, I, there was a, some evangelistic things that happened this week. And I'm thrilled to be with you this morning and to share this journey with you. Well, are you ready? We're going to take a journey together this morning. A journey into the potter's house. You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 18, in the first six verses, it says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I'm going to give you my message. And so Jeremiah writes, I went to the potter's house, and I watched him working at his wheel, but the pot he was fashioning from the clay was marred in his hands, and so the potter fashioned it into another pot as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hands of the potter, so you are in my hands. And so we see in this passage, God, he sends Jeremiah on a journey to the potter's house. And as Jeremiah is sitting there watching the potter work with the clay, God begins to unfold for Jeremiah a deeper understanding into how God works in the lives of his people. It really is a lot like a potter working with their clay. Did you know that the Bible makes reference in several places to God's relationship to his people as being similar to the relationship that a potter has to their clay? Did you know that? 
If we look in the earliest pages of Scripture, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, part of the creation account, there in verse 7, it says, And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, we know that the book of Genesis is originally written in the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew word that's used for formed here in verse 7, that God formed man, that Hebrew word is yatsar, and it literally means to form. But as a potter, what I think is kind of exciting is that the Hebrew root word from which yatsar comes from is yotzer. And yotzer, it literally means a potter. Someone who works with clay. And so a more literal translation of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 would read, And then the Lord God did the work of a potter and formed man from the dust of the ground. Isn't that cool? Come on. Yeah. And so we see right here in this Genesis passage from God's very first contact with his human creation, it is in the context of a relationship between a potter and, and they're clay. Well, with this understanding, what I want to do is I want to take you through some of the processes a potter takes their clay through as they fashion their clay into a piece of earthenware. And as I do, I want to talk with you about some of the similar processes God allows us to go through as he fashions our lives into what the Bible refers to in 2 Timothy 2.21 as vessels of honor fit for the master's use. Yeah, so I'm going to do several illustrations for you this morning with these pieces of clay. And, of course, this clay, as I said earlier, it's a metaphor for our life. And so I want you to see your life represented in these different pieces of clay. Now, when a potter's going to make something on their wheel, the first thing they need to do is they need to go out and dig up some clay. Now, when a potter's out looking for clay, you know where they look for it? They look for it in the swamp. They look for it in and around the wetlands. Now, when a potter's out looking for their clay, they're not looking for clay that's going to be perfect. And do you know why? Because there's no such thing. There's no such thing as perfect clay. The potter knows when they dig this clay up out of the swamp, it's going to have all sorts of muck and all sorts of mire and all sorts of junk in it. And the potter understands that dealing with all that junk that's in the clay, that's just all part of the formation process. Now, I want to start with this point because I meet a lot of people and they tell me that they want to have a relationship with God, but they just don't feel ready to have that relationship quite yet because they just don't feel good enough. Yeah, see, they're still struggling with some junk in their life. Maybe they're struggling with an addiction or maybe they got a habit that they can't control or, 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 or maybe they're involved with some relationships they know they shouldn't be involved with and they just don't feel good enough to have a relationship with God. But listen to me. Friend, the Bible makes it very clear. None of us are good enough. Did you know it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there is no one who is good enough. That's the whole reason why God sent Jesus into the world, to die for our sins so we can be reconciled to God because in and of ourselves, we're just not good enough. Listen, friend, God isn't looking for you to be good enough before you can have a relationship with him. No, he's just looking for you to be willing Come on, you just need to be willing to open your heart as Jesus Christ to come into your life. Give God a chance, and he's going to take you just the way you are because he understands that dealing with all that junk in your life, that's just all part of the formation process. Now, once the potter has their clay, they can't just put it on their wheel now and start working with it. It is not going to work, no. You see, the potter understands if this clay is going to be successful on the wheel, 
This clay has got to first be properly prepared for the wheel. Now, this process of preparing the clay, potters call it the wedging process, and it accomplishes three objectives, and I'm going to go over those with you as we get started. You ready? Now, in order to understand the first objective in preparing this clay, you've got to understand something about the structure of clay. Clay is made up of platelets of felspartic rock. That's all it is. Now, when the clay is first dug up out of the earth, all of the platelets that make up this piece of clay, these platelets are facing in all different directions. Now, in order for the clay to be moldable when it's on the wheel, and in order for the clay to have the strength, the integrity, it's going to need to have to stand up under the pressure and the stresses I'm going to be putting it under as I'm fashioning it on the wheel. All of these platelets, they need to be oriented in the same direction. I call it being oriented in the potter's direction. That is in the direction the potter wants the clay to go. And that's the first objective in preparing this clay. You've got to get it oriented in the potter's direction. <clears throat> now, the way this process looks, you put your clay on your work surface here, and then you push down on it, and you squish it. You just flatten it out. And then you push it forward, and you stretch it. You're trying to stretch it as far as you can get it. And then you roll it back on itself, and then you give it a twist. You twist it, and then you drive it down into itself and through itself. And you're going to continue this process until this clay has been prepared. Now, I want you to notice what's starting to happen to this clay as I'm beginning to work with it. Notice it's changing shape. See, it's taking on the shape of a cone. It's narrow at one end. It has some folds in it here. And if you can see it, it's starting to develop a counterclockwise spiral to it. And you can see that spiraling taking place right here in the wide part of the clay. This is the direction I'm orienting the clay. I'm going to rework the whole structure of this clay, get it all oriented in a counterclockwise direction. Now, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I have my wheel set up to spin in a counterclockwise direction. So what's going to happen is I'm going to rework this clay, get it all oriented in this counterclockwise direction. I'm going to pick it up and put it on my wheel, and look, it's going to continue to spin in the counterclockwise direction. Now, what would happen if the clay was oriented to the left, but the wheel was spinning to the right? What would happen if the clay and the potter were not both moving in the same direction? What would happen is I would only be able to draw so much potential out of this clay, and then I wouldn't be able to take it any further in its formation. That's right, because it wouldn't be able to handle the stress I was putting it under, and it would fall apart right on the wheel. And so the first objective, if you're going to fashion this clay into something beautiful, you've got to get it all oriented in the potter's direction. Now, as you're watching me do this, I have a question for you. And I want you to call the answer out loud to me. And you've got to call it out so I can hear it now, okay? Now, here's my question. What's the primary thing you see me using? What do you see me using here in order to move this clay in the direction I need it to go? What am I using? Call it out. All right, hands. I heard a lot of people saying hands, and I certainly am using my hands, but that's not the primary thing. The primary thing I'm using, yes, is pressure. Pressure. The pressure is finding its expression through my hands. But did you know that pressure, it can find its expression through lots of different things, can't it? Pressure finds its expression through things like financial difficulties, through challenges in relationships, through stresses in marriage through anxieties around parenting, through peer pressures, through employment issues, through health concerns. Pressure finds its expression through lots of different things. In this case, it's finding it through my hands. You see, this is a very 
physical process. I'm pushing down on the clay, and I'm stretching it, and I'm rolling it, and I'm twisting it. This is a really painful process for the clay right here. I'm, I'm heaping affliction right now onto this clay. This is a really painful process for the clay. And if this clay could talk to me, uh, what do you think it would be saying to me right about now? Uh, yeah, how, how, what would it be saying? Say it louder. How would it be saying? Yes, it'd be saying, ouch, stop. Potter, stop that. That hurts me. Why is this happening to me? I'm so confused. I didn't ask for this. Uh, why me? Why, I thought you loved me. Why, why, if you were really a loving Potter, you wouldn't be letting this happen to me. That's what it would be saying because this is a really painful process for the clay. But if I, as the Potter, if I could talk to this clay in a way that the clay could understand me, do you know what I would say to this clay in response to its cries of pain and protest? I would say, I would say, clay, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And so I continue. And so the potter uses pressure to move the clay in the direction he needs it to go. Now, when I think about our life, is there anything that can get your attention and orient you toward God more effectively than pressure? Come on, I see it all the time in the lives of people. They're too busy for God. They don't have time for God. They don't have time to pray. They don't have time to read their Bible or have a devotional life. They don't have time to go to church. Church, Sunday, hey, that's the only day I get to sleep in. That's the only day I get to be with my friends and family. They don't have time for church. And then one day, when they least expect it, a crisis strikes their life, and what's one of the first things out of their mouth? That's it. Oh, God. Oh, God, help. Oh, God, why me? Oh, hey, they got time to talk to God now. Oh, yeah, come on. They got time to pray now. Yeah, they might even find time to read their Bible. Why, they might even find time to go to church. Pressure. It orients people toward God. But you know what? This way of relating to God, calling on Him when you're in trouble, it's nothing new. Actually, it's as old as the Scriptures themselves. As a matter of fact, the psalmist writes about this very way of relating to God, and we see it so beautifully in Psalm 119 and verse 67. Listen to what the psalmist says here. He says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your words. You see, that verse captures this whole process, and we see it so clearly in that little phrase, but now. You see that phrase, but now, that's what English teachers call a conjunction because it ties two thoughts or two ideas together. There's an implication in this phrase. You see, the but now, it implies that there was a but then. Yeah. And if the psalmist is saying, but now I obey your words, the implication here is, but then I didn't obey your words. So something happened before the but now, and what was it? Well, he said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. In other words, when he had no affliction, he went astray. So what the psalmist is basically saying here, he's saying, when life was good, when life was good, I made some bad choices. And I said no to God's instruction for my life. And I went astray. And I did my own thing, my own way. And as a result, I suffered affliction. I got hurt. Now, the psalmist isn't clear what kind of affliction he suffered. I don't know if it was a physical affliction or an emotional affliction or a relationship affliction or a financial affliction or a marriage affliction or a parenting affliction or an employment affliction or a health affliction. The psalmist isn't clear. But one thing he is clear with, and that is that he said no 
to God's instruction for his life. He went astray, did his own thing, and as a result, he got hurt. Well, what happened as a result of that affliction? That's where the but now comes in. He says, but now I obey your words. In other words, he's saying he repented and he came back to the Lord. And listen, friend, it's never too late to come to the Lord. It's never too late to come to the Lord. Come on now. Some of you may be sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but it's too late for me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. If you only knew or I'm too old, or I'm too young, or whatever your excuse is, but it's never too late to come to the Lord. And that's what the psalmist did. He came back to the Lord. He got his heart right with God, and he learned the lessons God intended for him to learn through that affliction, and there are always lessons. And he writes about a couple of them a little further in that psalm. If you read down into verse 71, and then again verse 75, you'll see some of the lessons he learned. So the first objective in preparing this clay, you've got to get it oriented in the potter's direction, and the potter uses pressure to do that. Now listen, I want you to get a hold of this reality this morning, friend. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. That was Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah in 29.11. I know the plans I have for you. God has plans for your life. You need to understand that you were born on purpose for a purpose. You were born on purpose for a purpose. Your life was not a mistake. Your life was not an accident. It may have been a surprise to your parents, but it, it, was, not, it was not a surprise to God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, verse 16, that God was choreographing the days of your life long before your parents even knew each other. He just used them to get you here. And listen, I can't tell you the number of people that I've spoken to, even Christian people that have said to me, well, I was a surprise. I was a mistake. I was an accident. No, you weren't. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make accidents. You were born on purpose. You were born for a purpose. And listen, this is a good purpose, friend. Listen to me. It's a purpose that involves more than you just working really hard so you can make lots of money and buy lots of things that everybody else is only going to be fighting over after you're dead. Come on, that's what happens. That's what happens. God's plan for your life is bigger than that. And if you want to know what that plan is, if you want to be walking in that plan, the first thing you need to do, you need to get yourself oriented in a God direction. And I'm not talking about playing church here or playing Christian. I'm talking about it's time to get serious in your relationship with God and begin seeking Him for the call He has for your life. And sometimes God allows a little pressure into your life to orient you in that direction. Now, the second objective in preparing this clay, you got to work the impurities out of the clay. And you say, well, what kind of impurities does clay have? It has two kinds. It has earthen impurities, things the clay picks up from just living in the world. Then once those impurities have been removed, then the primary impurities become little pockets of air that get trapped inside the clay. And you think, well, what harm could a little air do? Well, hey, what harm could a little air do if it was caught in your heart or in your brain? It's just a little air. Yeah, it could be fatal to you. And so it is to clay. See, anything that's in this clay that's not supposed to be there, it compromises the integrity of the clay. And if this clay is going to fail anywhere, if it's going to break or fall apart, it's going to fail in those areas where its integrity has been compromised. Now, not only that, but sooner or later in this formation process, this clay has got to be heated up. Now, as the clay is heated up, any residual moisture that's in this clay, and there always is, it turns into vapor. Now, when moisture turns into vapor, it expands over 1,100 times its size. Now, when the moisture leaves those platelets of clay, those platelets shrink, and they form a denser mass. 
So what happens here is you've got the temperature in the kiln increasing. The moisture turns to vapor. The vapor gets trapped in those air pockets. Now the clay is shrinking, but the vapor is expanding, so it can't get out. Then as the temperature increases, the vapor continues to expand. The pressure builds up, and ultimately that pot, it's going to explode. And it doesn't just pop. That thing explodes. It is unbelievable what one contaminant in this clay can do. Listen, one impurity in this clay, it can prevent this clay from ever reaching its fullest potential. Now, not only that, but because it takes so much energy to fire a kiln, when potters do what they call their first firing, they're going to pack that pottery in as tightly as they can get it because they want to get as much as they can out of all that energy. So they put pots inside of pots, pots on top of pots. They cram pots next to each other. And when one pot explodes, it can often do collateral damage and hurt those pots that are near it. And so the second objective here is <coughs> it works the impurities out of the clay. Now, when I think about our life, I think, well, what are the impurities in our life? Don't call them out. But the Bible, the Bible calls them sin. Sin contaminates your life. Sin is going to cause you to compromise your integrity. And if you're going to fail anywhere in your life, in your work, in your relationships, in your ministry, you're going to fail in those areas where your integrity has been compromised. Now, I think, well, what does the potter use to work the impurities out of the clay? He uses that same pressure. Pressure brings the impurities in the clay to the surface so the potter can see them and remove them and work with the clay. Now, when I think about our life, is there anything? Is there anything that can bring your sin nature to the surface more effectively than pressure? Hey, how you doing? How you doing when you're late for that important meeting of yours and you're stuck in traffic somewhere and somebody cuts you off? How's your sin nature? Come on. Yeah, it's moments like that. You wish you didn't have that Jesus bumper sticker on your car, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Come on now. Yes, it is. How, how you doing? How you doing when you're feeling overworked and underpaid and discriminated against and taken advantage of and not appreciated? How's your sin nature? How's your sin nature when you've got more bills and money to pay them and you've got the kids pulling at you and your partner's being unreasonable? How's your sin nature? How about you? You ever explode when you're under pressure? You ever do any collateral damage when you explode and you hurt the people who are near you? Now listen to me. Just like there are two kinds of impurities that contaminate the clay, earthen impurities and pockets of air, so too the Bible implies there are two kinds of sin that contaminate your life. And this sin is going to prevent you from ever reaching your fullest potential if you do not deal with it. The first kind of sin that contaminates your life is what we call the sins of commission. These are the sins you commit. You commit them against other people. You commit them against yourself. You commit them against God. Now, the remedy the Bible has for the sins of commission, we see in 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, and he's going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Then Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. If you're bringing your gift to the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. Now, think about it. Why would your brother have something against you? Good, sweet, little old Christian you who never does anything wrong. Why would your brother have something against you? Your brother would have something against you because you did something to him. You hurt him. You sinned against him. And Jesus is instructing us here. When you sin against your brother, listen, you, the one who's at the altar, 
The one who thinks they are closer to God than the one who's not at the altar. Jesus is talking to you. He's saying, you take the initiative and you go clean that up. You don't demonstrate for anyone, friend, how spiritually mature you are by showing them how long you can outweigh them. Just waiting for them to come to you first and apologize. That doesn't demonstrate your level of spiritual maturity. It does demonstrate something about you, though, but it's not your level of spiritual maturity. The mark of spiritual maturity we see in Micah 6, uh, verse 8, it's to do justly. That means you be fair. You be fair in all of your dealings. Don't be trying to rip people off and don't make friends with people just for what you can get out of them. You be fair. Then you love mercy. That means you don't have to pay everybody back with your passive aggression when you don't get your way. And then it is to walk humbly. You walk humbly. The mark of spiritual maturity is to walk humbly. You take the first step. You're going to make that right. So the first kind of sin that contaminates your life, it is the sins you commit against other people. Now listen to me. The second kind of sin that contaminates your life, it is the sins that other people commit against you. The sins that other people commit against you. And you never deal with those sins or those people the way Jesus instructs you to. Oh, no, you're not going to forgive the people who hurt you. Oh, no, instead, you're going to get mad at them. And you're going to harden your heart toward them. And you're going to say, I'm never going to trust that person again. I'm never going to trust anybody again. You can't trust people because they hurt you. And you walk around angry. You walk around bitter. You walk around jealous and resentful and depressed and cynical. And these are all the fruits of unforgiveness. And so you walk around with this attitude of anger and unforgiveness in your heart. Friend, this is the most dangerous thing you can do at every level of your life. Did you know the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, when you're holding on to anger and unforgiveness in your heart because of the way someone hurt you, whether they hurt you this morning or 30, 40, 50 years ago, the Bible tells us that there is a stronghold that gets a hold of your life and it robs you of the joy and the peace and the victory that Jesus Christ died for you to have. Friend, you cannot be holding on to anger and unforgiveness in your heart because of the way life did you wrong and then go walking around out of the other side of your mouth saying, oh, I love Jesus. I just want to serve the Lord. God just used me in some great way. You can't do that. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 20, how can you say you love God who you cannot see but you hate your brother who you can see and who's made in the image of God? You can't do that. And so you say to me, well, listen, I'm not going to forgive that person for what they did to me, and I still love Jesus. I'm not saying you don't love Jesus. I'm saying when you hold on to anger and unforgiveness in your heart because of the way people hurt you, whether recently or in the past, there's a stronghold that gets a hold of your life and robs you of the victorious life Christ died for you to have. Listen, when you hold on to anger and unforgiveness in your heart and say you love Jesus, what you do, pay attention now, what you do, you move your relationship with God, you move it from your heart up into your head. And now you maintain an intellectual relationship with the Lord. Your relationship with God is purely an academic one. And you go around saying, oh, God, I love you. Oh, Lord, I just want to serve you. Use me in some great way. Oh, you're in every church service. You're not going to miss a church service. You're running from Bible study to Bible study. You got all the books. You got all the tapes. And you know all this fascinating biblical trivia. You got all this great spiritual knowledge, but you have got no spiritual power. You are spiritually impotent. 
You're still controlled by your depression. You're ruled by your fears. You're paralyzed by your anxieties. You're still in bondage to your addictions. You can't control your anger. Your thought life's in the wrong place more times than it's in the right. You don't have a decent relationship with another human being. Your marriage, if you have one, is void and empty of the joy and excitement it used to once have. And you're standing there saying, well, I guess this Christian thing just doesn't work for me. I thought once I had Jesus in my heart, I'd be able to live a, a victorious life, but I'm powerless to change anything. No, friend, listen. This Christian thing works really good. It's just not working for you because you have an intellectual relationship with the Lord. Listen, if you want to live the victorious life Christ died for you to have, you have got to heal from the ways people have hurt you. You have got to heal from the ways people have hurt you. And the first step in that healing process is you need to forgive them and you need to learn to walk in an attitude of forgiveness. Now, don't shut me out because I said the forgiveness word. I'm going to tell you why it is so hard for you to forgive people when they've hurt you. Now, if you get a hold of this principle, it'll change your life. It'll set you free. The reason it's so hard for you to forgive people when they've hurt you is because you have bought into and believed a lie. Yeah, you. You've believed a lie. And this is a really good lie. I mean, like as far as lies are concerned. Because it it was crafted by the father of lies. And this lie was created to keep you in bondage to your past. And the lie goes like this. The lie leads you to believe that if you forgive the people who've hurt you, that what you're really saying is that you have gotten over what they've done to you. doesn't bother you anymore. They don't have to suffer any consequences for what they've done to you. You could even be friends if that's the way you want to take your relationship. But listen to me, friend. That's not what forgiveness means. That is not what forgiveness was designed for. Now listen to me. It will never, never be okay that somebody molested you. That will never be okay. It will never be okay that somebody raped you. That will never be okay. It'll never be okay that somebody beat you up. It'll never be okay that somebody forced you to have an abortion against your will. It's never going to be okay that somebody lied to you and then they used you for everything they could get out of you and then they just walked out of your life and went on to use somebody else. It's never going to be okay that someone was unfaithful to you. Never going to be okay somebody stole from you. Never going to be okay that somebody gossiped about you and slandered you and tried to malign your character and sabotage your success. These things are never going to be okay. The Bible makes it very clear, friend, when people sin against us in these ways and in other ways, the Bible makes it clear that God is going to vindicate you. God is going to vindicate you. God is a just God. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He's a God who vindicates the oppressed. And when people sin against us in these ways and others, the Bible says God is going to vindicate you. But listen, he's going to vindicate you in his time and in his way, not yours, because God knows more than you. He's got a bigger plan than you. In the meantime, God makes forgiveness available to you as a way of releasing you from the power and the control that that person who hurt you is still holding over your life. Forgiveness is a powerful spiritual principle that's designed to set you free, not the people who hurt you. God is going to deal with them. Now I want to explain, the devil, listen, the devil is no fool. 
And the devil begins to, to work at sabotaging your ability to forgive. And he starts when you're really young at an early age. And, he's, and he starts with this little childhood saying. And I, I want to take a little survey here this morning. How many of you have ever heard this little saying? It goes like this. You need to forgive and forget. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that saying. <clears throat> you need to forgive and forget. Wow, just about everybody in the house has heard that saying. <clears throat> see, some of these kids have heard it. I'm going to see them as clients when they're older if you don't get a hold of this. <clears throat> Listen, I have sat with, with clients who have, have been broken and weeping and have said to me, I want to forgive this person, but I keep remembering what they've done to me. I want to forgive this person, but I keep remembering what they've done to me. And they think because they can't forget what was done to them, they can't forgive what was done to them. But listen, friend, you know, I have even heard it preached from the pulpit that the Bible teaches us we need to forgive and forget. I've heard that preached from the pulpit. The Bible teaches us we need to forgive and forget. Let's clean this mess up right here. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. The Bible does not teach us to forgive and forget. The only mention of forgiving and forgetting in the Scriptures is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. And this is where God is talking about a new covenant He's going to be making with all people for all time, one that transcends the old sacrificial law. And we become heirs to this covenant when we open our heart and ask Jesus Christ to come into our life. And then in the context of what the Bible calls this new and better covenant, God says, I'm going to forgive you of your wickedness and remember your sins no more. God is the only one who can forgive forgive and forget friend you can't do that and praise God that he can forgive and forget I'll tell you what now I want you to understand this physiologically it's impossible to forget I'm going to give you a lesson in cognitive science now this you get this is graduate level material and you're getting this for free but if you can get a hold of this this is going to change your life listen when you're exposed to information that data gets encoded chemically and electrically and stored in a series of neural connections in what cognitive scientists call a neural network. Then when that neural network is stimulated, the data that's encoded gets sent through a neural pathway into your frontal lobe and you retrieve a conscious memory of it. Wow, I bet you didn't expect to get that in church this morning. No, you didn't. But listen, <clears throat> this is why you can be older and you could be walking along and then you're exposed to a sensory cue like you see something or you smell something or you hear something. Maybe you're, you're cycling through the radio and you come on to an oldies tune and you hear that old song and all of a sudden your mind goes back to when you first heard that song and you remember the friends you were with and what you were doing. Ever have that happen? I see some of you going like that. Yeah, see, you thought you forgot that memory. You couldn't have called that memory up if somebody asked you to. But you see what happened is the right sensory cue, an auditory, auditory cue, it activated that neural network, sent the data encoded there into your conscious memory, and you retrieve a memory of it. It's so important that you understand physiologically it's impossible to forget. See, why? Because if, you, if you're waiting to forget before you can forgive, friend, you're just going to remain tormented to painful memories of your past. That's all that's going to happen. So listen to me now. For the Christian, for the Christian, the biblical injunction is not to forgive and forget. No, because you can't do it. For the Christian, the biblical injunction is to forgive and let go. You forgive and you let it go. 
This is what the Apostle Paul meant in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, when he said, forgetting what lies behind me and straining toward what lies before me. He wasn't talking about forgetting cognitively. Because if you go back into the beginning of that chapter, at verse 3, he starts with a whole overview of his history. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a persecutor of the church. Paul did not forget his past. He didn't forget his shame. He didn't forget the dumb things he did. But what he's saying here is he's saying, I'm not going to let my past determine my future. I'm not going to let my past determine determine my future, and neither should you. Neither should you. I'm going to give you my definition for forgiveness. This is, this is copyrighted, so if you quote me, put my name next to it. <laughs> so, no, so, here, this is, my, this, this, is my, this is my definition for forgiveness. Forgiveness means that you are releasing to God the responsibility for your vindication. When you forgive somebody... You are releasing to God the responsibility for your vindication. Listen, there's a, there's a saying, an old saying that goes like this. Keeping unforgiveness in your heart, it's like drinking poison, hoping someone else will die. Come on now. Keeping unforgiveness in your heart, it's like drinking poison, hoping someone else will die. So what you been drinking lately, friend? What you been drinking? So you say, God, I'm going to forgive that person who molested me. I'm going to forgive that person who walked out on me. I'm going to forgive that person who was unfaithful to me. It doesn't mean what happened was okay. It means I'm not going to give them any more control over my life. You're going to vindicate me, and then I'm going to go forward into the good things of God. So the second objective, you've got to work the impurities out of the clay. Listen, the third objective, it cultivates a relationship between the potter and the clay. You see, there's all different kinds of clay. It's not just clay. And if the potter is going to work effectively with this clay, they have to understand the characteristics of it. And the only way that happens is you've got to spend time together. And Isaiah the prophet understood this and wrote about it in a beautiful way. Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. He said, Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You're the potter. We're all the work of your hands. He's talking about a relationship here. And listen to how he describes it. He begins by saying, yet, O Lord. So he recognizes and acknowledges that God is the sovereign Lord. God's the Lord of heaven and earth. And God wants to be the Lord of your life. And that happens when you say yes to God. You open your heart. You ask Jesus into your, into your heart. And you yield your will to his lordship. Then Jesus becomes the Lord of your life. But listen, friend, God wants more from you. God wants more. God loves you. He wants to have a love relationship with you. He wants to be your heavenly father. Now listen to me. God loves you, and God wants to be your heavenly father, and God is nothing like your earthly father. God is nothing like your earthly father. No matter how great of a guy your earthly father may have been, or no matter how terrible of a person your earthly father may have been, God is nothing like him. And the reason I'm saying this is because I've talked to so many people, and they tell me they, they, they love God, but they find it hard to really trust God. Hard to trust God, the author of life and love. And when we deconstruct that fear and we get to the root of it, we discover it's hard for them to trust God because somewhere along life's way, they were not able to trust their earthly father. And they think, well, because they couldn't trust their earthly father, now they can't trust their heavenly father. But God's nothing like your earthly father, friend. Listen, God's never going to embarrass you in front of your friends. God's never going to shame you. God's never going to criticize you and make you feel like you can't ever do anything right? God's never going to call you fat, dumb, ugly, and stupid. God's never going to go running off with somebody else. God's never going to violate your body. You're never going to see God beat up your mother. You're never going to see God addicted to anything. 
You never have to walk around on eggshells with the Lord wondering what kind of a mood he's in. You never have to worry about God walking out of your life and never coming back because God's nothing like your earthly father. Yeah, hallelujah. Gloria a Dios. Hallelujah. Yes. Listen, I take this illustration all around. And one year I had two people come up to me after the service in two different locations, a middle-aged man in one location and a middle-aged woman in the other. And they both said to me basically the same thing. They said, when I was 12, when I was 15, I was an eyewitness. I saw my father murder my mother. I watched the police take him away. I lost my family that day, and I've, I've grown up clinging to God out of desperation, but I've always been afraid to trust him because of what happened to my mother. I looked at those people. I said, hey, listen, God did not kill your mother. God's not going to kill your mother, and God's not going to kill your father, and God's not going to kill your sister, and God's not going to kill your brother, and God's not going to kill your children, and God's not going to kill your marriage, and God's not going to kill your parents' marriage. That's not God. The Bible tells us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave. See, he gave. God's a lover, and love gives. God doesn't want to take from you. The only thing God wants to take from you, friend, is your sin-stained life and your broken heart. But Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that you'd have life, and that'd be a good life. But listen, he also said in that very same verse, there is someone who's come to kill your mother. Oh, yeah. He said there's someone who's come to kill your father and someone who's come to kill your sister and your brother, and there's someone who's come to kill your children, and there is someone who's come to kill your marriage, and there's someone who's come to kill your parents' marriage, but it's not God. It's the devil. It's the enemy of your soul. Look, don't blame God for the things the devil has done or for the consequences of the rebellious choices you have made. Don't blame God. I said to those two people, listen, you have been mad at the wrong father. You need to be mad at the father of lies, not the father of lights, who's the giver of everything that's good and perfect. Hallelujah. And then after God becomes your, your heavenly father, he's going to be your potter. He's going to take your life. He's going to take your broken life with all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your addictions, all of your messed up relationships, and he's going to fashion your broken life into something beautiful, something that goes beyond your wildest imaginings. But this is the order. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We're the clay. You're the potter. We're all the work of your hands. It's lordship first, relationship next, then comes the formationship. Okay, now this clay is ready to go onto the wheel, so let's see if we can make something with it. Come on. Yeah. Now... When a potter is going to fashion something on the wheel, they've got to take the clay through several stages on the wheel. The first thing they've got to do is they've got to get the clay uh, centered. Uh, when the clay is in the center of the wheel, it's in the center of the potter's will. See, it's my will for it to, to be here because that's the only place I could work on it. Now, this clay here is not centered. It's on the wheel, but it's not centered. So what's it doing? It's just going around in circles. That's all it's doing. You know what? I meet a lot of people like this. I meet a lot of Christians like this. They're just going around in circles with their life. They confuse activity with accomplishment. They think because they're running here and they're running there that something actually is getting accomplished for the kingdom. But the only thing that's happening is they're just running around in circles. They're just getting dizzy. But they're dizzy for Jesus. Oh, yeah. They're dizzy for God. Hey, 
Hey, do we have anybody here this morning who's dizzy for Jesus? Let me let somebody raise their hand. <laughs> well, actually, I could see two of you from where I'm sitting that look dizzy for Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. Everybody's looking at me. Come on. Just, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but I think for a moment here, there was probably a lot of people in this room wondering who the other person was. Come on. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So the first thing we're going to do is we got to get this clay. We got to get this clay centered on the wheel. Now, as this clay, as this, as this wheel spins around and around, there is a force that's exerted on this wheel. It is an invisible force. It is a centrifugal force. And it wants to take what is ever on this wheel and it wants to fling it off the wheel. It just wants to pull it away from its relationship with the potter. And this, this clay does not have the strength to stay on this wheel by itself. It needs the strength and the help of the potter. In the same way, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that this is really, even though we live in a physical world, it's really a spiritual world that we're operating in. And the Bible tells us that there are spiritual forces in this world that are trying to pull you away from your relationship with God. They are trying to distract you from your relationship with God. And just like this clay cannot stay on this wheel in its own strength, it needs the strength and the help of the potter, you cannot withstand these spiritual forces in your own strength. This is why you need the active and dynamic working of the third person of the Trinity in your life. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. Now that this clay comes into the center, it, it enters into a place of, of rest. There is a stillness. Ooh, look at that. You're going to have to clean this up. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> it enters into a, a place of rest. This reminds me of God speaking to us. Uh, through the psalm of Psalm 40, 46, 10. Listen to what he says. He says, be still and know that I am God. Be still. What God is telling us here is that we come into a knowledge of God in the stillness that we don't come into when we're not still. This is why the spiritual discipline of meditation is so important, that you develop a quiet time, a devotional life, where you shut yourself in with God, and you just wait on the Lord so God can reveal himself to you in the stillness in ways that he cannot when you are not still. This is why God doesn't say through the psalmist, get busy and know that I'm God. <laughs> or get overcommitted and know that I'm God. Or burn out and know that I'm God. No, it's be still. Yeah. Now that it's still, it's eligible for the next phase. And that is we're going to open it. The way the potter opens the clay, the potter supports the clay. The potter always supports the clay. Friend, you need to know God is for you. God is for you. Then you take your fingers and you plunge them right into the heart of this clay. And then you draw the clay open. Now, this part here is always a very intimate moment between the potter and the clay because there is a real searching out that's going on here if there's something in this clay that's going to create a problem, 
later on. I'm gonna, this is the place I'm going to first encounter it right here. This reminds me of the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 100, in 139, verse 23. Listen to his heart here. He prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what's happening here. This clay is being searched out. There, let me show you. It's open now. See, it's open. Can you see it? Is there something up there? Oh, yeah. See, it's open. Now that it's open, it's ready for the next phase, and that is we're going to lift it. The way the potter lifts the clay, you've got to apply pressure to the inside of the clay and to the outside of the clay at the same time, and then you begin the process of drawing the clay upward. And like any process, it takes time, and you do not want to rush the process. This process here reminds me of James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you. Okay, look. Look, I don't know if you can see this from where you're seated, but... Sometimes this happens, and sometimes it does not, and it is happening now. So I have to believe there's a lesson here for, for someone. If you can look across the horizontal plane on this cylinder here, do you see how it's going like this? You can see that? Now, you know, you could say, oh, that's kind of artsy. kind of adds to the artistic character of the – see, our artists think like that. You know, art adds to the artistic character of the, of the pot, but that little thing that's going like that, uh, that's potentially fatal to this cylinder right here. See, that little thing is throwing this thing out of balance. And I'm afraid to try to take it up any higher. It's going to fall. And it'll happen so fast, I might not be able to catch it. And so what the potter has to do when it's out of balance is you've got to take a little, just a little tool here, see? And then what you've got to do is you've got you to trim that out. And then it restores balance to the cylinder, you see? Yeah. <clears throat> now listen, sometimes we have little things in our life, and they don't seem like a big deal. Maybe they add a little spice to our life, you know? <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just a little habit, or maybe it's a little addiction, or maybe it's a relationship that we're involved with, and in our heart of hearts, we know we should not be involved with that. That little thing is throwing your spiritual life out of balance. And if you don't trim that thing out of your life, it's going to happen so fast, you might not be able to catch it. It's going to take you down. This is the little fox that spoils the vineyard right here. So, you know, receive that from the Lord. If you're struggling with something, you receive that from the Lord, and you trim that thing out of your life. And I'll tell you what, one thing I have noticed in my walk with the Lord, when you make hard decisions for God, when you honor God with your life, God is going to honor you. Do you know what? You know, if we look through the scriptures, you know, we'll, we'll see 
there are many different names that are in the Bible used uh, to name Christ, Jesus, the Christ. You know, you may be familiar with some of them. Actually, there's 273 different names that are used to refer to Jesus Christ. Uh, Messiah, the first Adam, all right, or the second Adam, the firstborn from the dead, the Alpha, the Omega. These are all names that refer to, refer to Christ. Uh, one of them is the Son of Man. And when you read in the Gospels, whenever the Son of Man is made reference to, he's always seated by the right hand of the Father. I looked up, I saw the Son of Man seated by the right hand of the Father. And there he was, the Son of Man seated by the right hand of the Father. There's only one place in the Scripture where the Son of Man is not seated. And that's where Stephen is being stoned, the first martyr. And he's coming under some pressure. And they're about ready to stone him. And he is not backing down on his testimony. And just before they're ready to stone him, he says, Look! I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. That's the only place he's seen standing. Listen to me, friend. No matter how hard it is, when you stand up for Jesus, Jesus is going to stand up for you. You stand up for the Lord. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Submit yourself under God's mighty hand and he will lift you in due season. Pressure on the inside and pressure on the out. How about you? Any of you ever have pressure on the inside of your life and on the outside at the same time? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you do when that happens? Do you grumble? Do you complain? Do you whine? Do you make life miserable for everyone around you? Hey, why did that get a response? <laughs> or do you allow God to lift the Christ-like character out in your life so others can see Christ in you, your hope of glory? Okay, now that this play has been lifted, now ready for the next phase, and that is we're going to do an internal work on this pot. Now, with my outside hand, I'm steadying this clay, supporting it, protecting it, but what I want you to see is that all of the work is taking place on the inside of the clay. And you see the work that's taking place on the inside of the clay by the way, it's reflecting on the outside of the clay. Look at this is exactly how God works. God works from the inside out. Religion works from the outside in. Religion says you do this and you do that and you don't do this and you don't do that. And then you're going to be something that you're not. Neither are you capable of being, which is holy and righteous. You can't work your way into righteousness. This is the whole Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, It's by grace you're saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. So no one can boast. You can't work your way into righteousness. This is why you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. His Holy Spirit comes into your life like my hand going inside this pot and does a transforming work from the inside out.
Not yet. A vessel of honor right here. <clears throat> I appreciate appreciate that. Appreciate your, your clapping. But I want to challenge your thinking for a moment. I want to challenge your thinking. I want you to think about why you're clapping. You know, I, I said that because when I said to you earlier, I'm going to do several illustrations with these pieces of clay. Nobody clapped. I mean, you didn't get excited for the clay. Now, now I'm, I make something. <clears throat> now, now I make something. Everybody claps. You know, like, like, what are you clapping for? You're clapping because you, you see something now you didn't see before. You understand something now you did not understand before. You see, you saw the clay. It came into a relationship with the potter, right? It didn't have to have its act together. didn't have to be perfect. just had to be willing, willing to yield to everything the potter was doing in its life. And because it did, because it did, the potter was able to draw out from the clay something you didn't see before, but you see it now, and that is its potential and you got excited and you started clapping because now you see you see the potential you see something you didn't see before listen this is exactly what Jesus meant in Luke chapter 15 verse 7 when he said all of heaven rejoices when one person comes to repentance when you say yes to God all of heaven does for you what you just did for this pot because now heaven sees potential for a kingdom work in your life it didn't see before. Now listen to me, friend. How come all of heaven can get excited about the potential it sees in your life, but you can't? How come you can't? Now you see, we can see its potential, but as far as I'm concerned... I don't get excited here. No, I get excited right here soon as I come into this relationship because I see things in here that you can't see because I'm the potter. See, I see the potential in here. You know what I see when I look in this big piece of clay? I'll tell you what I see. I'm an Italian boy. Yes, I am. And when I see this, I see me a big bowl of pasta with spicy shrimp and lots of garlic. Come on, give me a witness for that vision. Woo, I'm getting hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> but you see, you see, we, we, can, we can see its potential, right? We can see its potential. But listen, from a functional standpoint, this pot here is of no more functional use to me than this clay here. I cannot use this clay any more than I can use this clay. I can see its potential. I can see what it, be, could, it could be used for. But guess what? I can see it right here. I, need to wait. I don't need to wait till this point. If, if I want to use this pot for the potential for which it has been destined, i got to take it through a few more stages. The first thing I have to do is I have to set its potential. And the way the potter sets the clay's potential is I must take this pot now and I must put it into the fire. Oh, man. And this is not a little fire. To set this clay mix, this is where it gets hot, friend. I'm going to I'm have to heat this thing up to 1,800 degrees. There is not much that can withstand 1,800 degrees. To put that in perspective for you, I was talking to the director of a funeral home one day. You want to have an exciting conversation, friend? <clears throat> Do not talk to the director of a funeral home. 
because that conversation is going to be rather dead, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know it's corny. I know it's corny, but it's true. It's true. I really did talk to one. It really was dead. It just fits so good right here. I had to use it. So, so, and, and, and they worked they work with a crematorium, you know, these ovens that cremate people. And I was curious because my, my father was cremated. And so I asked him, how hot? How hot do you have to make those ovens in order to take the entire lifetime of another human being and reduce it down to a little five-pound bag of ash? How hot? He said, 1,800 degrees. And I thought, wow, that's the temperature I fire my pots to. And I'm driving home, and I'm just kind of kind of meditating on that, thinking of that. And the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart, reminds me of the words of Jesus in Mark 8.35, where he says, if any man's going to save his life for the kingdom, you've got to lose it to this world, friend. You want your life to count for heaven, you've got to die to this world. Oh, there's some parts of you that have to die. But listen, when it comes out of the fire, it's going to look like this. See, all these pots here have been fired to 1,800 degrees. And, and you see, it's lighter. In color. I like to think of it now as it's reflecting the Shekinah glory. A fire has a way of purifying. Now, not only that, but look. Ouch. That's hard. There's a reason they call it stoneware. That thing is hard. That pot could never withhandle this kind of an impact. Never. It would just collapse. And not only that, but, but listen here. Listen. Can you hear this? That's a note. God made that note. I like to think of it now, this pot's got a song. This pot's got a song. Now listen, here's an observation I've made because I'm a student of human behavior. Here's an observation I made. When you go through the storms with your life, not if you go, when you go. Did you know that that's a promise from God in Isaiah 43 too? That's a promise. You're going to walk through the fire. How many want to claim the fire walk promise? Huh? Come on, we want to claim all the other promises. We don't want to claim the fire walk promise. But listen, the Bible says you're going to walk through the fire. When you walk through it, friend, listen to me, stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. You stay faithful to God. Young people, you stay faithful to God. Don't turn your back on God. Don't shake your fist at God because God knows more than you. God's got a bigger plan than you. And if you read the second half of Daniel chapter 3, you will discover that when you are faithful to God in your fire, God has a way of showing up in the midst of your fire and you're going to come out of the other side of that thing. Not only are you not going to smell like smoke, friend, but your life is going to have a song. Oh, it's going to be a song of praise, a song of thanksgiving, a song of deliverance, a song of healing, a song of provision your life is going to have a song yes it will but here's the way it works want the song for life you got to go through the fire to get it that's the only way and once it comes through the fire it's then eligible for the next phase and that is we're going to put glaze on it and then for that glaze to maximize its relationship with the pot guess what has to happen it's got to go back into the fire and this time it's even hotter the glaze fire this Clay mix here, I'll have to heat it up to 2,350 degrees. That's, that's really cooking. Now, that's hot. You see, you see these pictures of the volcanoes and the magma and the lava, and you think, how hot is that lava? When scientists measure lava at surface temperature, it's 2,000 degrees. This pot's got to be heated up 350 degrees hotter than molten lava. But when it comes out of, the, out of the fire, depending on the glaze you put on it, it could look something like this. Now, see, this is an earth tone chino glaze. There's all different kinds of glaze. And do you know why I use this particular glaze? Because I like it. Yeah, I think it looks good. <laughs> yeah, and the potter, the potter can do that. Now, see, now, what, what, 
what I want you what I want you to notice here is did you see when I was making this I put a little squiggly line on it I don't know if you can see it in the back well, well potters call that a form of surface removal but what I've done is I have scarred the pot I've scarred it I did it to this pot too I don't know if you can see it because it's lighter but right here see this is a permanent part of this pot now and another potter is going to come along and they're going to pick this up and they're going to look at this and it's going to tell them a story about how this pot was made you see, that's what scars do. Scars tell stories. I have scars on my body, and when I look at them, I'm reminded of how I got them. When my children say, Daddy, where'd you get that scar? I got a story to tell them. See, scars tell stories. See, see, you tell somebody that you were molested when you were little. That's a scar, and that scar tells a story. And you don't have to tell anybody else about your story, especially if they were molested. You, you tell somebody that you grew up in an alcoholic family, that's a scar, and that scar tells a story. And you don't have to say anything else about your story, especially if you're telling someone else who grew up in an alcoholic family. You tell somebody you had an abortion, that's a scar. See, scars tell stories. Now listen, I can't take this scar off. I cannot undo the past. You can't undo it. Now look it. I can cover it up, though. I can hide it. I just got to put the glaze on real heavy here. And then when it comes out of the fire, you're never going to know it's there. But from the potter's perspective, why scar the pot if you're only going to hide it? You see what's going to happen when this thing comes through the fire now? The glaze is going to break over this scarring, and you're going to be able to see an aspect of this pot. It, it gives it a sense of dynamic, a sense of movement that other pots that don't have this do not have. And I can guarantee you what would happen if I were to take this thing and put it out over here on the floor in the sanctuary, and you were to come into this sanctuary, and there was nobody else in the sanctuary. This is what you'd do. I guarantee you'd do this. You'd walk over to that pot. First thing you'd do is you'd look around, make sure no one was looking. Then you'd pick this thing up, and the first place you would touch it, you'd touch it right here. See, you think just your kids touch everything. You don't outgrow that. You've got to touch, 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 touch everything too. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You've got to touch everything. See, there, there's something about the scarring that makes people want to connect with it. Listen, if you will give those things that have scarred your life, to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll give those things that left their indelible mark on your soul, stop trying to cover them up with the glazes that this world has to give. If you'll give those things that have left their mark on your soul, God is going to take your brokenness. He's going to put his healing balm over you. How he does it, I don't know. That's part of the mystery of the cross. But God's going to give you the great exchange you're going to get that Isaiah 61.3 talks about. This is where you're going to get your beauty for your ashes, the oil of joy for your mourning, and the garment of praise for your spirit of heaviness. You know what your spirit of heaviness is, friend? That's your depression. God is going to take that thing out of your life because it's not his will for you to have it. And then what's going to happen, he's going to bring other people into your life. And guess what? They're going to connect with you right around your scarring, right around your pain. And why? Why are they going to do that? So you could sit around and commiserate together? No. But so you could point them to the direction, to the one who is able to heal you from your broken life so they can find it for theirs. <clears throat> yeah, I want to show you a couple of other things here. You see this clay here. I took these all out of the same lump of clay, but I did something with this clay. I let this clay dry out. Clay has to have a certain level of moisture in it in order to be moldable. This one here, I let it dry out. <coughs> As you've been watching me work on the wheel, 
You're seeing me put water over the clay. What does the water do? It keeps the relationship between the clay and the potter uh, viable, and the clay is moldable. And when I ask it to do something, it responds to me. Uh, in, the, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 5, verse 26, Paul's explaining how Christ sanctifies the church. And he says he sanctifies her by washing her with water and the word. The water in this illustration represents the word of God. As you keep the word of God washing over your life by reading your Bible, by meditating on the scripture, by memorizing scripture, by getting under spiritual authority, by getting into good teaching, by coming to a community of faith, coming to church, God is able to direct your life. This dried out clay represents the person who has neglected the water of God's word. This is the person, they're not reading their Bible. They're not memorizing scripture. They're not going to get under spiritual authority. Oh, no, this is the gospel according to them. So what, what can the potter do with clay that's neglected the word of God? Whoa. What can the potter do? The first thing we've got to do is we've got to get this thing into the center. Now, this clay, I don't know if you can hear it, but it's actually talking to me right now. And it's saying, don't tell me what to do. Whoa. I'm clay. I know. Whoa. <clears throat> so can the potter do with clay that's neglecting the word actually I can't do anything with it so so what does that mean for the clay does that mean that this clay is now hopeless no this clay is not hopeless this clay is just hard and you see I love this clay too much to neglect it even though it's hard and it's not listening to me. I love it too much. And do you know why I love this clay? Even though it's not listening to me, I love it because I paid a price for it. This clay costs me something. And I'm not going to neglect it just because it's not listening to me. No, I want to redeem it. I want to pull it back into service. So you know what I have to do? I've got to take it through a few more stages. The first thing I have to do is I have to let it dry out completely. You see, you can't force more water into it. Laws of physics prevent that. So I'm going to take this clay and I'm going to stick it up on a, a little shelf in my shop. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to make all this other really cool stuff on the wheel. And while well, I'm sure while well, that clay is watching me make cool stuff on the wheel, it's thinking to itself, that potter doesn't love me anymore. That potter doesn't care about me anymore. I see it doing all this other cool stuff with all these other pieces of clay, but it's just ignoring me. No, I do love it. I love this clay just as much as I love this clay, just as much as I love this clay. But this clay has taught me something. It's not going to listen to me, and the clay doesn't tell the potter how we play the game. No. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let it dry out. You know what happens to clay when it dries out? It gets very, very brittle. Here, look. This is a piece of big chunk of dried clay. I just brought it to show you. It gets brittle. And then, I, the potter, I am going to take this dry clay and I am going to break it. I'm going to break it. And I'm just going to break it in half. No, I'm going to break it in lots of pieces because the more pieces it's broken into, the more responsive it will be to the next phase. And do you know how I'm going to break it? I'll find something. I'll find something that's going to work. And then I'm going to take all these broken pieces <clears throat> I'm going to pick them up. <clears throat> I'm going to put them in a basin. And then I'm going to pour water over that dried clay. And that dried clay is going to start absorbing that water. And that water is going to break down this hard clay, just like the Word of God can break down the hardest heart of the hardest man. And I know because I was one of them. 
And then I'm going to pour that sludge. It's going to break it down to sludge. It won't even look like clay. I'll pour that sludge out on a plaster slab, and that plaster is going to absorb the water, and I'll keep my hand in it. And when it gets to just the right consistency, I'm going to start wedging it up like this, and before you know it, I'm going to have me a ball of clay like this that's moist and malleable and ready to go onto the wheel and be fashioned into something. Here, now I want you to watch this here. See this, see this clay here? This clay here is clay that loves the potter. They love the potter. Here, you see this? See this here? This is a little pebble. I picked this up in my yard. This is going to be for sale after the service if you want it. It's <clears throat> so I'm going <laughs> to, there's plenty more where that came from. I'm going to, look at, I'm going to stick this pebble into the clay. See, I've contaminated it now. Now, that pebble, it represents a wound in the heart of this clay. See, maybe this clay was molested when it was little. Maybe it was a victim of domestic violence. Maybe grew up in an alcoholic family. And it's never let its pain go. It's held on. It's not going to forgive. It's going to hold on to its pain. Now, listen. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you three reasons why you need to heal from the pain of your past. First reason, if you do not heal from it, this is what you do with your pain. The first thing you do with it is you organize your life around it. If you don't heal from your pain, you organize your life around it. The second thing you do with it is you end up recreating it. You just do it in a different context with different people. That's what you do. I, I know it's true. It's true. I, 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 PhD, I have a PhD in counseling. I have a master's in family, marriage and family therapy, and I teach this at a graduate level. And one of the things I teach my students is when people come in, when they're presenting symptomology, those symptoms are telling you a story. Something's being recreated in that life. I tell my students symptoms are nothing more than messengers that are pointing the way to a hidden truth. And your job as a clinician to tease that thing out. So if you don't heal from your pain, you organize your life around it, then you end up recreating it. You just do it in a different context with different people. And the third reason it is so important for you to heal from your pain, because if you don't, you can only go as far in your life as your wounds allow you to go and no more. You can only go as far in your relationships with other people as far as, far as your wounds allow you to go and no more. Don't think you're going to go further. You're not. So you need to heal from your pain. This person here represents the person who's not going to forgive. They're going to hold on to their pain. What can the potter do with the person who's going to hold on to their pain? Let's see. Well, th the clay can be centered because it loves the potter. But there's more to the walk of faith than being centered. And so the person is centered now, and they say, Oh, God, I love you. Uh, use me. I want my life to count for something. Use me in some great way. Here, before we take you to the next step, let me ask you a question. From where you're seated, can you see the wound that's buried deep in the heart of this clay? Can you see it? No, you can't. Now, look, I want you to turn and look at the person on your right. Just look at the, your other right. That's it. Look at the person on your right. Now, come look at the person on your left. Now, look back at me. Could you see the wound that was buried deep in the heart of the person sitting next to you? No, you couldn't, but I'm going to tell you something, friend. It is there. It's there. So what can, what is the, what can the potter do now? Well, the clay says, oh, Lord, I, I love you. Use me. And, of course, the potter likes that prayer. But, you see, in order to be used, you've got to be opened. Out, out. And in order to be opened, you've got to come under pressure. And what does pressure do? Out, out. It brings 
the impurities to the surface. Now, as this thing out is spinning around, there's a, there's a rock in here, Whoa. and it's hitting my hand, and it hurts me. And so you're saying, well, what are you doing it for? Because I'm trying to illustrate this for you. That's why. So <laughs> now, 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 can you, can you see, can you see the, the little wound coming out through there? See, right here. This is where the Christian relapses into their addiction, right here. This is where the Christian loses their ability to manage their anger and they end up hurting somebody that they care about. This is where the Christian gets back into another abusive or exploitive relationship. So what do most Christians do when this happens? Well, it's been my observation they do this. They hide. That's right. They hide. Then what they do is they put on what I call their Christian happy face. Here it is right here. This is the Christian happy face. And... This is the face you see most Christians wearing on a Sunday morning that makes you feel like everybody else in the church has their act together except you. And you see them out there in the foyer or whatever, and you say, hey, how you doing? And they say, oh, I'm doing good. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing good too. God is good, isn't he? All the time. Oh, yeah. He's good all the time. Oh, yeah. You got the victory. Oh, I'm walking in the victory. Oh, blessings all mine. Oh, 10,000 besides. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. See, see. You, you got all the church talk down. You got all the church talk down. Listen, I grew up in New York, and, uh, you know, I lived on a street for a long time. And in, you're going to survive this street in New York. You've got to know the culture of this street, or it's going to eat you up. And, and they call that having street smarts. See, when you have street smarts, you know the culture of the street. You know the walk you have to walk, the talk you have to talk in order to survive. Well, I've been in the church for a while now. And I've observed that there's something I call church smarts in the church. Yeah, you know the talk you have to talk, the walk you have to walk in order to survive the culture of the church. But you could be no more saved than the devil himself. And so here you are, and you got your church face on, and you got your church talk on, but inside you're dying. You're dying. And you say, nobody cares about me here. They ask me how I'm doing. They don't stand around long enough to hear my answer. They don't care. And you start to think God doesn't even care. So what happens at this point when you get to this point? Well, it's my observation. What happens next is you're going to start getting religious. Yeah, you're going to do something that's nice and religious. Maybe you're going to join the worship team. No offense, worship team. Or you're going to be a Sunday school teacher. No offense, Sunday school. And you see, the distraction, it serves the purpose. It distracts you from your pain, but it doesn't heal you from your pain. It doesn't remove your pain. It just distracts you from it. But like any good distraction, after a while you get used to it, and then you need another distraction. And so you say, oh, God, use me in a greater way. And God says, sure, but a greater way means greater pressure. And so God starts putting you under greater pressure. And then this thing starts becoming a greater problem. And then what happens, what I want you to see here, you see, in order for this clay to accommodate that little wound, it can't absorb it. So how does it keep it in its system? It has to organize around it. And in order to do that, it throws the balance of this cylinder off. And that's what happens in your life. You make a big mistake to think you could hold on to the pain of your past and have it not affect you. You, think you, make a, you make a big mistake to think you can keep a little secret sin going on in your life and have it not affect you. You organize around that. And it throws your whole life out of balance. And then what happens is the devil comes along and says, well, that's just the way you are. 
that's just the way you are. But no, that's not the way you are. God doesn't make anything out of balance. The Bible says unjust weights, unjust measures are an abomination to the Lord. God does not make anything out of balance. And so you're going through life. Now, look, your life is out of balance, and I'm trying to lift this thing up, but I can't get it up any, lift it any higher than the wound in it is allowing me to lift it. And that's what happens in your life. And so you go limping through your life, just trying to be a good Christian. Ow. And then one day when you least expect it, your life, it comes crashing down around you. And where does it break? Right here on the edge. And so you see a process of reestablishing a love relationship with you. This is a love process, friend. This is a redemptive process. You see, our attitude when we crash with our life, because either of the sins that we commit or the sins others have committed against us, our attitude is, God, I, I learned my lesson. Can't we just pick up where we left off? But you can't do that. If I tried to, this would just fall again. You see, because in order to accommodate that wound, the clay has to organize around it, and it affects every area of it. So it's going to compromise your integrity somewhere. So you've got to allow God to work the process. And then when the potter is ready, not when you're ready. The potter's going to take your life, a life that was once broken beyond recognition, and he's going to bring you back over to the wheel. And he's going to put you on this wheel. And listen, he's going to put all of you on. He's not going to leave any of you out. And he's going to take you through a process. process of centering you. And you are patient now because you understand some things you didn't understand before. And then when God is ready, he's going to open you and he's going to search you out He's going to begin to lift you. But he lifts all of you, friend. God loves all of you.
this clay here was once so broken. Now the potter is lifting it. And once, once it's lifted, it's ready for an internal work. Now, potters call this internal working, they call it giving the pot a form and a function. I like to think of it as giving the pot a calling. God is going to raise your life up out of your brokenness, out of your failure, and he's going to give you a calling. And then... After he gives you, after he gives you a calling, he's going to do something with you that he wasn't able to do before because you. You were not ready. So he gives you a calling. And then he's going to give you an equipping. And he's going to equip you in a way you were not equipped before. And why does he do this? He does this so you can now take from your broken life and you can pour, you can pour from your broken life into the life of another broken person so you can bring them into a relationship with the potter so they can find healing for their broken life just like you found for yours. Gloria a Dios, hallelujah, come on, hallelujah. You see, friend, this is my life. This is my life. My life has been so broken. I, I, I just, I don't know, I just feel like sharing just a little, a short piece. It wasn't my intention to share this. When I was 15, my mother ran away. And I lived in New York, and my father was not interested at all of being a father. And so me and my two sisters, we grew up on the street. 15 years old, I was stealing food. This is still food to eat. I remember ripping a seat cover out of a car wrapping myself up with it, sleeping on the side of the road, 15 years old. I have four children now. When I see how easy it is to love your children, when I see how easy it is, I say, why is it so hard? <laughs> why was it so hard? I had to work that stuff through. I had to forgive. I, I know what I'm talking about. That's just a part of it. You can just imagine what that life is like. I, 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 I'm, this is my life. I know what I'm talking about. I want to close with a story. The story is told of an old Chinese woman. And she lived in a little farm on the outskirts of town. 
and her farm was known for its beauty. She had beautiful flower gardens, beautiful flower-lined trails. The birds of the air would come to her farm. The butterflies would come. People would come. They'd walk in her, along her trails, and many of them would find God as they sat there in her, her gardens. Well, out in the front of her yard, she had two clay water pots that were tied to either end of a long pole. And every day, twice a day, she'd put that pole across her shoulders and she'd walk down to the river near her home and she'd fill those pots up with water and carry them back to the, to the farm and empty them into a larger clay cistern and she'd draw water throughout the course of the day. Now, the pot that was on her right, it was a fairly new pot and it had the look and the feel and the smell of new clay. It just stood there at sharp attention. Even the water it carried looked so clear and refreshing. And the pot that was, was on her left, it was an old pot that was mottled and chipped from having endured the storms of life. It even had a crack that went from the top down to about the halfway point. And every day when she got back to the farm and she emptied it into the cistern, the new pot, it always had a full pot of water, but the old broken pot, it never had a full pot of water. And the old broken pot felt really bad about this. Well, this went on for days and weeks and months. And finally, one night after she emptied its contents into the cistern, the old broken pot, it just couldn't take it any longer. And it spoke to the woman. It said, Master, I'm broken and I'm, I'm so ashamed. I can never carry you a full pot of water. <clears throat> I look over there and I see that other pot. It's so perfect. Even the water it carries looks more refreshing than the water I'm carrying. And it always carries you a full pot of water. But I can never carry you a full pot of water because I'm broken. And I'm so ashamed. And the old woman, she looked at the pot and she said, I know that you are broken. And because I know that you are broken, I have planted flowers all along your side of the path. And every day you water those flowers through your brokenness. And the reason we have so many beautiful flowers on our farm, the reason the birds of the air come and the butterflies come, the reason people come and many find God, really it is because of your brokenness. Yeah, amen. <clears throat> you see, friend, that's the message of a journey to the potter's house. That's the message of the cross. You see, see, God knows that you are broken. And he wants you to stop pretending that you're not. There's so much freedom. There is so much power on the other side. Now, as, as, as we bring our time together to a close, I, I want to give you two opportunities to respond to this message. And so please listen. Open your heart. If you, if you want God to take your life and to fashion your life into the plans he has for you, the first thing you need to do, you need to have a relationship with the potter. <laughs> Just makes sense, doesn't it? How else can the potter fashion the clay if they don't have a relationship with it? I want to just... Wait a second, Pastor. I just want to explain something. How, how, how else can the potter have a, have a fashion the clay into something if he doesn't have a relationship with it? How else can God fashion your life if you don't have a relationship with him? You know, maybe you have one, and maybe you don't. Or maybe you've been like the psalmist. You kind of you went astray. It's time to come back home. I want to I share something with you. To me, this is the most, one of the most powerful things Jesus says in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, 22, and 23. Listen to what he says here. He says, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
He says, many people are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? And didn't I drive out demons in your name? And didn't I do miracles in your name? And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. Why? Because you did. You're a good religious person. What he does say is, I never knew you. I never knew you. So you did these things. I won't deny that, but I never knew you. You know, you can go to a library in town here. You can get a book, a biography, an autobiography on any famous person. You could read up, get all the information about them, go to their house, knock on their door. They open the door. You say, hi, it's me. They say, who are you? I'm your biggest fan. I know all about you. Know where you grew up. Know you had a little puppy. Know your nickname. And they say, well, you, you sure know a lot about me, friend, but I don't know who you are. And they're going to shut the door in your face. You do the same thing. If somebody weird like that showed up at your house, wouldn't you? Well, Jesus said the same thing's going to happen. A lot of people are going to say, God, didn't I go to church? Didn't I put money in the offering? Didn't I go on a mission trip? Didn't I go down to the soup kitchen? And Jesus isn't going to say, no, you didn't. Because you did those things. See, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, now listen. In Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the, from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10, listen. It says, for with the heart you believe and are justified, but with the mouth you confess and are saved. You see what the Bible is showing us here? This transition into the spiritual life, it's a two two-step process. It involves belief. With the heart, you believe and are justified. With the heart, you go to church. With the heart, you go to the soup kitchen. But it's with the mouth you confess and are saved. See, that's the peace. This is why you could see a lot of good people who, do not, who will not have the promise of God. They will not have heaven. And you see, you mean to tell me this person, hey, look, we all know people who are nicer than some Christians we know. And you say, you mean to tell me that person's not going to go to heaven? That's exactly what the Bible says. If they're not willing to confess Jesus is Lord. See, you can do good things, but that doesn't give you the promise of heaven. It makes you a religious person. And listen, religion in and of itself, it's not that bad. The only thing that's bad about religion is when it leads you to believe that that's all you need. That that's enough, but it's not enough. Jesus is showing us here in Matthew chapter 7. Paul, the great apostle, is showing us here in Romans chapter 10. It involves two things. It involves believing in your heart, and then confessing with your mouth. Now listen, if you do believe, if you do believe, why wouldn't you confess? There's only two reasons. If you believe, there's only two reasons you won't confess. One, because at the the very heart of it, you don't believe. Or two, because you're too prideful. It's your pride. The Bible says God resists the proud. You don't do life according to your rules. You do them according to the rule book that God has left for us, the Word of God. And if you're here this morning, I want to give you two opportunities to respond. The first is to say yes to God. To say, enough with religion. I don't want to be bound by a religious spirit. And I I go all over. There's a religious spirit in the church. And we got to get rid of that. We need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, and, and maybe you've been a good religious person, but you've never taken the next step, I want to give you an opportunity just to say yes. And listen, this is the word of God. So if you want to say yes this morning, you want to come back, just lift your hand. I want to pray with you from where I'm seated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hands. Yes, sir. I see your hands over there. Yes, yes, yes. I see your hands. Pastor, are you looking around? You see the people. There's about 15 people have their hands up. Thank you. Are there others? Are there others? Thank you. That's right. That's the right thing to do, young people. I see your hand, brother. That's the good. That's the right thing. Don't be, don't be ashamed of the Lord. Listen to me. If you're feeling a little tug of war in your heart and it's saying, do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. That's a spiritual battle that you're witnessing right now. There's a tug of war going on for your soul. God is on one side, the devil's on the other, and you're the rope. And listen to me, somebody's going to win this morning. Let it be God. 
Are there others? Are there others? Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. That's right. You raise your hand. Yes, yes, yes. I see your hands. Thank you. Thank you. You're doing this for you, not for me. God has sent me here with this message. Are there others? Yes. Let me pray for you now. Listen, you just make these words your words. It's not the words. It's the attitude of the heart God is looking at. You say to your Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins, of which there are many. And I ask you that you would please forgive me of my sins. Oh, God, please come into my heart and be the Lord of my life. Help me to fulfill the plans that you have for me. Oh, hallelujah. Help me to live for you. Help me never to be ashamed to stand up for Jesus and to confess him as my Savior and as my Lord. And now take my life, my broken life, take it, God, and fashion it into something beautiful. Show me the plans you have for me. And I will praise you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, I want to clap for you. All of heaven is clapping for you right now. Hallelujah. Can you hear it? Hallelujah. Yes, I can hear it. Praise the Lord. Praise God forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Gloria a Dios. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Listen, I want to I just say something to you. For you who have raised your hand, please sit down. Because I'm not through with you. <laughs> God still has a little more. Listen, if you just raised your hand and you prayed that prayer, you just took the first step on a spiritual journey that'll change your life. But like any journey, it requires another step, doesn't it? When you go on vacation, you just don't drive the car out of the driveway and then park it. You keep going. You want to get to your destination. So if you prayed that prayer, you just took the first step. But now you got to take another and another and another and that is why God has raised up pastors and he's raised up churches and he's raised up people who are on this journey with you who can come alongside you and you need to get plugged into a community of faith friend you want to take this town by storm you need to get plugged in to a community of faith so if you came here with a friend and they go to a different church you say you bring me to your church I'm going to church with you if you don't have a church home we want to invite you to come here this pastor loves you he loves you I know he does because if he didn't I wouldn't be here he wouldn't call, call me to bring this message because he loves his people. He's a good shepherd. You need a shepherd in your life. Now, I want to I give you one more opportunity to respond to this message, and then I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. We're done. As I was talking about the potter using pressure and pain and the way the potter scars the pot, and you saw how the, the clay had the wound in it and how it wasn't dealt with and it just fell apart, you see that? As you, were, as you were looking at that, maybe you were sitting here and you were reminded of a time when somebody hurt you. Somebody violated you. Somebody betrayed you. Somebody did you wrong. Somebody scarred your life. Listen to me. Listen to me. You are my brother and sister. We're blood kin. I love you. I do. I give you my heart. It's my life I shared with you. If that was you, if that was you, 
I believe this is God showing you it's time to bring closure to this part of your life. It's time to stop giving the future to the past. It's time to forgive and let go and go forward into the good things of God. Knowing, knowing that forgiving doesn't mean it was okay. It'll never be okay. God's going to vindicate you. Trust the word of God. Trust that God will do what he said he'll do. And if you're here this morning and you want to say yes, as hard as it is for me to understand this concept of forgiveness, as hard as it is, I want to be set free from that pain, from the past. I'm not going to give my future to the past anymore. I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you as I close. Come on, raise your hand. Yes, yes. Okay, hands coming up all over the auditorium. They should be. Yes, yes, come on. Come on, don't you hold back. I've worked with enough broken people to know everyone in this house should have their hand in the air. Come on, the only one that you're, that's losing out is you. Come on, listen. Okay, I want to just say something else to you. Put your hand down for a second because I'm feeling in my heart some of you should be raising your hand and you're not. That's between you and God. Listen, in Luke's gospel, he tells this story. He gives the account of a woman with an issue of blood. Maybe you're familiar with it. You know that story? And she'd been bleeding for 12 years, hemorrhaging for 12 years. And she spent all her money. Nobody could help her. And now Jesus is passing by. And she's in a crowded street. Do you know what the law, do you know what the law, the Mosaic law required that woman to be doing? Sitting there in that crowd of people. She was supposed to be sitting there saying, unclean, unclean, I'm unclean. See, nobody was supposed to touch her. Because if they touched her, they would be unclean. And if you were unclean, you couldn't go into the tabernacle. You couldn't go into the presence of the Lord. But who comes by but the tabernacle of tabernacles? And she touches him. Technically, legally, he should have been unclean now, but he wasn't. He transcended the unclean. Imagine imagine if she sat there and she said, oh, no, I'm not going to press through that crowd. People know me. What if they see me? What are they going to think? If she didn't press through and touch him, you know what would have happened to her? She would have gone home kept on bleeding and she would have bled to death now some of you listen to me, some of you have been emotionally hemorrhaging for years you've been emotionally hemorrhaging for years and Jesus is passing by I feel the presence of God here now and he's inviting you to reach out and touch him, friend don't hold back, reach out and touch him Raise your hand if you want to reach out and touch the Lord this morning. Be set free from the pain of your past. Hallelujah. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. God, in the name of Jesus, I come before you. And I lift up my brothers and sisters here this morning who are lifting their hand heavenward. Your word tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please you. And by a raised hand through a courageous act of faith, they're saying, yes, God, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to give my future to my past anymore. I want all things to be new. Be Jehovah Rapha this morning, God. Be Jehovah Rapha this morning and heal your people. Oh, God, show yourself strong on our behalf. Oh, God, I pray that you'd break every stronghold, break every shackle that has kept people in bondage because of the pain of the past, because of sins committed against them because of sins that they have committed. Break every stronghold down. Loose them and let them go. Oh, hallelujah. God, we're more than conquerors. Let us go forward this morning in the victory which Christ died to set us free. I pray for each person who lifted their hand. May they feel the burden lifted. May they feel the burden lifted. May they feel the, the fetters loosed. And when they step outside this morning, may the sky look bluer. Oh, God. May the grass look greener. May the air smell sweeter. When they lay their head down on their pillow tonight, may they hear your words whispering you're proud of them. They're a good daughter. They're a good son. You have never left them. 
even in their darkest hour, when they shook their fist at heaven and said, why God, why have you forsaken me? That's not the first time somebody has ever said that to you. Your very own son said those words to you. And you were as near to him as you were to us as we went through our dark time. Oh God, and now lift us. Reveal yourself to us, I pray, that you reveal the future and the hope. Give people a new vision. Make the future clear for them. Make the the calling and election sure. Oh, Father, we love you. We love you, God. And we give you all the praise and all the glory for you alone are worthy. Hallelujah. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I want to turn it over to the pastor now. Come on, just stand with us. Okay. Thanks for joining me. Come on, just lift your hands if you made a decision for Christ today. If you just love him right now. Come on, help me out here. Because where would I be? You only know. I'm so glad you see. Through eyes of love. I'm as a hopeless case An empty place If not for grace Come on, tell him, where would I be? Where would I be? You only know So glad you see I was, I was a hopeless case. Come on, an empty, an empty place. If not, come on, amazing, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Oh, I once, I once was lost. An empty place. Come on, if not, if not for grace, so amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was a hopeless case. Come on, I was just empty. An empty place. If not, come on with every head bowed and every eye closed. Come on, just respect the presence of God on this place. Uh, if I can get the ministers and the prayer team to come on up to the front, I want to extend an invitation to anyone who's struggling in your spirit. Maybe you have one of those addictions, one of those flaws he was talking about as the prayer team comes. Come on, come on, come to the front. As if you have one of those issues, come on, every head bowed, every eye closed. No one's looking around. Maybe you have some scars that look so deep that you can't even see the end of them. You, you can't see how, how the potter can do all this, but yet God says if two or three would just touch and agree. Oh, come on, there's power in agreement. Come on, if that's you, just come to the front right now. Come on, if 
might get some more of the leaders just to come on to the front and start praying for just lay hands on the praise and worship team. Come on, come on. Because where would I be? Come on, tell them. You only know. I'm so glad you see. Through eyes of love. I was a hopeless case. An empty place. Come on, if not, if not, it's amazing.
but I was truly, truly blessed. Come on, if you were blessed, just look to somebody next to you and just say, I was blessed today, amen. You know, we have an opportunity. Just give me a couple more seconds. Just still praying for folks. We have an opportunity. Mike takes this message all across the nation, all across the states, all across the world. And I want to give you guys an opportunity. You know, we never take two offerings. I want to give you an opportunity to sow into Mike's life. I don't know about you, but he's radically changed my view of a lot of things in Christ. And whether it's a dollar, whether it's five dollars, whatever you can sow into this mighty man of God, man, he is an awesome, awesome, by far one of the greatest preachings, teachings I've ever heard in my entire life. I've been exposed to church 24-7, eight days a week since the day I was born, but yet today I had a true encounter with God. Amen? How many had an encounter with God? Come on, that word encounter in Greek, that word encounter really means to have a collision with something unexpected. Maybe you came to watch something. Maybe you came just to see a show, but yet you came in a collision with a true potter, the potter called Jesus Christ, the potter called the Father, the potter who can mold your life that we were talking about. Amen? Come on, do you have an experience today? 
Come on, I'm so excited. Come on, if the ushers could just bring up the offering basket. And I'm going to say the last prayer, and you can come up and you can sow as you please. We're not going to go in any specific order. The ushers aren't going to guide you in. I want you to guide yourself to this altar if you want to sow something in it. As soon as we say this prayer, amen. I'm excited. I'm excited. Tell somebody next to you, I'm excited. Man, if you want to hear this again, it's on the website, gbatoday.com. YouTube, it tells your neighbors that they better get onto this website and check this out, amen. The recording's on there, not the video, just the recording, but what a powerful, powerful teaching, amen. Come on, if you can be still in the sanctuary, right? Just be still real quick. We're going to say a prayer, then you can come right up. Come on, every head bowed, every eye closed. Grab somebody's here next to you as we join in. Come on, dear Heavenly Father, we just come in agreement that we thank you for the blessing of Michael Ferris today, Father God. We thank you for the message. We ask you that it would fall on good soil. That we would take those imperfections out of our lives. We would remove, God. We would actually, God, know how to handle those scars now, God. That we learn to forgive and to let go, Father. That you would take control. For those of us who in this place are obviously dealing with, we were touched by your spirit. And we're dealing with issues and complexities and, and different types of things in our life. God, that you would give us the strength today, God, to let you mold us. To let that pressure come through our lives, God. That we'll embrace the fire that comes to cleanse us, that comes to harden us, to give us a new song, God. The psalmist wrote that I have a new song in my heart. God, I have a new song in my heart. Thank you, God. And we thank you for the opportunity to come into this house to worship. We thank you for the souls that were added to the kingdom, for I know that heaven still, at this moment, rejoices. We know heaven right now still is celebrating that some of you said yes to Christ. That some of you embraced him. And for that, God, we are thankful in this place right now. We love you so much, God, for what you did in our hearts. We thank you for letting Mike come to this place, God, and be able to bless us and sow into us, God. We thank you for the ministry you've given him, God. Bless him right now, Father. From the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, God, that you might give him a new song in his heart, God. That you might help him to take this message across the world, God strengthen him God for the call you have on him is mighty Father and we see it in this place may your name be glorified and as we leave this place that we would not leave your presence God and the people of God say amen come on greet somebody on your way out of this place amen God bless you